Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. Today, Oliver Brackenberry joins me. He and a whole troop of people join forces to create a sword and sorcery magazine full of new stories and evocative art. We discuss the path that took him there and the genre in general. Of a Patreon, if you want to hear content that hit the cutting room floor, we have it served flesh. <laughs> served fresh, that is, off the floor. Think of it as a director's cut, whose extra content is whatever the camera recorded after the scene ended and the actors were getting ready to go home. Put on your boots, grab your sword. We're heading to the land of Zen Zen. Venture awaits, sisters and brothers. It is time to get rambling. Hello, Oliver. Hello. <laughs> well, we uh, had Mark on last time, and we talked about this uh, this fringe subject, this this uh, obscure subject, swords and something <laughs> or other, swords and swords sorcery. and substitutions. It's all about restaurants. Yeah, and, uh, and order so, right. Yeah, <laughs> and so it was kind of funny that you know. You know, we you reached out. I think it was you reached out to to Mark and myself, and uh, regarding because we started to talk about your project. I guess we got right to the edge. <laughs> Just about my uh, what happened was um, I, I'm working with a couple of the guys on this magazine, and Kevin Blessum is our social media guy. He was watching the video. And he was watching you guys start to talk about it. And you nearly said New Edge Sword and Sorcery, but I think Mark just said New Sword and Sorcery. Yeah. And Kevin was like, oh, they're so close. And so <laughs> he told me about it. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll reach out. Maybe <laughs> So I can come in and wag my finger and correct you. No, no, no. Yes, just, uh... yes, yes. I do need that on occasion. <laughs> Humility is nah. not a problem. I, I, I find plenty of opportunities to, <laughs> to air. So you guys got this magazine. So it's New Edge. New so, Edge Sword and Sorcery. I think, I mean, the idea of New Edge, I mean, it seems to apply a lot of different, I mean, not a lot, but at least a couple different things. Got a hardcover too, looks a little pretty, slightly different cover. Oh, sure enough. Um, yeah, this is issue zero, which we released in the fall uh, on Amazon POD and digital. Uh, digital we did uh, for free and POD at cost. Like this is only $3.99 US, this is $11.99 US. It's a, no profit to anybody and the whole point was to do that so as to make it as accessible as possible for people to give it a whirl and build like kind of a ramp up, you know, to what is currently happening. Uh, as we record this, there's 11 days left, 10 days, something like that. March 4th, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time is when the Kickstarter for issues one and two ends. And that is to allow us to have some money to, heaven forbid, pay everybody involved, <laughs> pay them yeah. as much as possible. In fact, most of our stretch goals are pay bumps for writers and artists. And uh, to pay for professional uh, printing to help us escape the Amazon ecosystem, which right. only seems determined to become more hostile to uh, <laughs> magazine publishers. Uh, so let's, let's, publishers go, that, let's go back to issue zero. Is, yeah, uh, okay. So you're saying right now <clears throat> we got we got to because you use the F word, which was, I think, yeah. free. Correct. Free. Uh, in digital EPUB and PDF. Free. So right now. Okay, going to Amazon, everybody listening. Oh, pardon me. Uh, for the Amazon doesn't like selling things for free. They wouldn't okay. let me put the digital at zero dollars. So you want to go to newedgeswordandsorcery.com and links are very easy to find. It's all on the main page. Can't miss it. Uh, to go buy a digital from somewhere else, uh, but soft cover and hardcover are on Amazon. So, so everybody listening, there is nothing to lose by going, except a few minutes of your time, and you get a free product to read. 
Exactly. With lots of lovely art in it. You know, it's free, but we put it together uh, with a lot of love and tried to make the highest quality thing we could. And so this was the, I guess what you're trying to do, we talked about earlier. So this was kind of the buildup for the Kickstarter that you're doing now. So you're, yeah, you're like, like Zero that. was kind of this passion project prototype. You know, I'm figuring out for myself while doing it. Do I like doing a magazine? Because I had done it before. Um, you know, I've been involved in a lot of big collaborative uh, yeah. projects, usually in the realm of TV, film, web series, that kind of thing. But uh, if I may tell you the origin story, uh, back in the spring of last year, I was on the Discord server for a, another great magazine, which, by the way, is free, called Whetstone Magazine. And that just seems to be, at least in my experience thus far, the best hub for conversation about the genre. So, yeah, Whetstone Magazine, their Discord, you can Google that pretty easily if you want to go see what that's all about. There was a discussion last spring that was kind of the circular discussion I have seen in many various nerd circles over the years. I say that with love, I'm in them. <laughs> I worked at Comic Shop for years. I saw many of these conversations when I was there about where it's just like, how do we make this thing more popular? You know, we love it to pieces. It's when kind you of say this thing, what do you sword mean by sorcery? Sword like it's sorcery. Kind of, it's, yeah, like it's kind of, you know, it's been building steam. I mean, I'm not saying I swooped in to save it. You know, there's other very hardworking people who've been building it up for the last few years, like Howard Andrew Jones or Scott Oden. But, uh, you know, it's not a secret that it kind of hit a sort of deflation period over the back end of the 80s due to just like too many cruddy movies that were trying to capture the lightning in the bottle that was the Conan film with Arnold Schwarzenegger and too many writers and publishers who were taking fewer and fewer risks for, and just doubling down on a very simplified idea of what sword and sorcery can be that had been selling really well uh, in sort of the late 70s, uh, but they just petered out as people got tired of seeing the same thing over and over again. And there was some newer, fresher stuff coming from other places. And so sword and sorcery never died, but it definitely like, you know, went down to a low ebb over the course of the 90s and 2000s. But, you know, approximately maybe like six, seven years ago, like you started to see more publications coming in, more authors giving it a whirl. And especially in the time that like I've been sort of deeply invested in the contemporary scene, which has been the last like three years, uh, it's been building more and more steam. And I'm kind of hoping we might be on the cusp of a third wave of popularity, with the first being its birth back in the 30s in the pulp magazines, like Weird Tales with your Robert E. Howard and so on. Yeah. And then it's sort of second renaissance over the 60s, 70s, and early 80s uh, with your Michael Moorcocks and so forth. Speaking of which, we have Michael Moorcock committed for a new story in issue one, uh, one of those magazine issues we're trying to fund. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So we had this conversation back in the spring on the server, this classic, how do we make this thing come back? You know, it's a conversation I've seen crop up before, kind of go in a vicious circle and then just die down again with nothing new. You know, people come up with well-meaning but not very actionable suggestions. Like, we just need another hit movie. It's like, all right, I'll get on that, you know. Um, but this conversation was different. It was three days long, very intense across time zones, you know. And by the end of it, there had actually had been some pretty interesting stuff, largely centered around, well, let's face it, most people who love sword and sorcery these days are white straight cis guys who are 35 and older and there's nothing wrong with that we're not trying to get rid of them right <laughs> i'm one of them listener like i'm i'm not, I, I don't want to get rid of me you know um but it's like we need to add we need to expand grow include more people younger people well and i also think the thing is too is friendly to other it now is expanding your base but it also is adding more variety to the stories you're going to tell Exactly. And I, like I say, I haven't invented this concept. I'm just doing my part to try and add to it. You know, for example, uh, one uh, writer who will have a nonfiction uh, profile uh, article in issue uh, one or two, we haven't decided yet of the new issues, Milton Davis with his company, MV Media, has been doing great work building a platform focused on Black creators 
And I strongly recommend anyone listening who would like to see more of that uh, to go check out MV Media. So, yeah, and that's probably something we want to just maybe we'll we'll we'll, we'll uh, put that in a parking lot for for the moment. So I think sure. that's something I also want to discuss too. That'd be a good thing. So what you're saying is there really is if I'm if I'm understanding what you're saying is most of the stuff that's being produced is more in the zine or magazine format, less as far as actual, there's not really, as far as mainstream publishers publishing new sword and sorcery work, there isn't much of that going there's, on. There's not buckets of it, but it is changing. And in fact, actually a name I mentioned earlier, Howard Andrew Jones, you know, he's worked hard with Goodwin Games, uh, the RPG company behind Dungeon Crawl Classics and many other great things. To, for the last few years, uh, I think since 2017, I want to say, published his own magazine, Tales from the Magician's Skull, which is not a book, but I mention it because his character has had a series of stories through the skull, Anavar. Well, he, uh, last fall, I believe was when it was publicly announced, got a five-book deal with Bane Books to tell story, more stories of Anavar in collected you know, book editions. So, I so that's up one the issue, example. It's, I picked up issue one and another issue is much later. Um, because it was part of the humble bundle, and that was one of the stories that absolutely stuck. So there was like a couple I didn't really care for. There's a lot that were really pretty decent, and the Hanovar was like excellent. Mm -hmm. And I I think what's interesting is the way he just dribbled in just a little bit of the world at a time. Yeah, no, Howard really, really gets the genre, and one thing he really gets. I mean, I don't want to be too perspicuous. Prescriptive. I don't like to be gatekeepy. And in fact, something I, I say over and over is that this is a very flexible genre that can be kept recognizable while trying a great many things. But I think one of the more consistent aspects you tend to run into is something Howard is very good at, which is to not dump a lot of world building on top of you in, in you know, big loads of exposition or just like a guy sitting in a room really looking at all the details in the room or whatever. He uh, is very good at weaving it into the action and giving you just enough to intrigue you and get your imagination going. And that tends to be how the, you know, generally recognizes higher quality sword and sorcery uh, fiction plays it. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, because I think the, the first one, the, 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 the big thing was the, the, uh, this one country had, uh, had subjugated another country, and they were trying to get these people to give locations of family tombs. Yo, I know the one you mean. I think, that, I think the one you're talking about is uh, The Second Death of Hanavar in issue three but i might be wrong gosh it's been a minute um but but yeah like the the overall the the loose real life historical basis of it is essentially the roman empire having a hannibal figure which is hanavar you know before the story begins having taken a shot of them like in history but then you know it didn't quite work out and so the sort of overarching narrative of his uh connected loosely connected stories is that he is now on the run trying to do what he can for his conquered and dispersed peoples yes and uh, he's yeah. he's kind of a a paragon you know of, of of skill and of virtue and all these things but yet it's also like it's just fun characters that are being involved and some characters like i don't know if this guy's going to come back but you know we'll call it the N- npcs and in gaming parlance there's it's like very interesting things and 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 it seemed like you would think that he would fall under some tropes he really doesn't like it is like, no, it's, it, he does. It, it just did it very well. Like the, you know, you expect the tomb to be some magic and some monsters. Like, no, yeah. it's just, this, there's something weird about the tomb, but it's not about just monsters and craziness. 
Not at all. No. And I started me wagging my finger. There was me thinking, oh, wait, that wasn't the second death of Hanabar. I'm getting mixed up. That was another one, but I have read it. I know the one you mean. I just can't remember the name off the top of my head. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Howard, Howard really thinks about his writing. And I mean, I've got nothing but nice things to say about the guy. And to sort of bring it back to the narrative of New Age Sword and Sorcery uh, and the magazine coming to, around, you know, um, long before that conversation that led into the magazine uh, sort of springing out of the Whetstone uh, Discord server, me teaming up with other guys on that server to make it, you know, June last year is when we went, okay, let's do this. Let's make a physical thing to go with our ideas about how we should expand this. Let's try and demonstrate it, right? You can't just talk. Otherwise, what do you do? Write a manifesto, put it on a website? Um, before that even happened, when I was thinking about just doing a magazine in general and I hadn't found a point of focus yet, I was so impressed by the skull that I reached out to Howard and I just sent him an email thinking he might answer, might not. And he actually invited me to chat with him on the phone for an hour and really like let me plumb, you know, his knowledge and his experience. And since then, I've been lucky enough to take a, um, he did a heroic fantasy, uh, he called it, but, you know, sword and sorcery, whatever, same, similar thing. Uh, he did a course, a running course last summer, uh, the summer before last, pardon me, 2021 that I did. That was quite good. And just, yeah, Howard's just a great guy. I, I, can, I can only say nice things about it. But my point is, to come back to your thing about the books, um, yeah, like that's that's maybe... I think the big spear point, you know, he's got a five book deal with Bane. Bane is also looking at um, releasing sort of updated, re-edited versions of a couple of Scott Odin's sword and sorcery novels. And they're, I imagine, looking at doing more still. But that's just one publisher. I mean, I, I want to see what else is going to come out, you know, in times ahead. Uh, I, can't, I can't predict the future. But yeah, it is primarily still magazines, zines, uh, self-pub like novellas. Uh, I, I mean, I, the format of a novella really lends itself well to sword and sorcery, I find. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm talking all over the show. Pardon me. I'm very excited. Oh, no, no, that's fine. Kind of go all over the show. But yeah, so like I say, June, you know, the conversation on the server goes into June. People are, some people start saying to me, because I was one of the more vocal voices, hey, man, you should do an anthology. And I was like, no, how about a magazine? So people were like, yeah. And I was like, but isn't it going to help me? Because that's a huge endeavor. <laughs> and a few people went, yeah. And I was like, great. So that's how, you know, I got, uh, I want to give a shout out to Nathan Webb, uh, who is, does layout and design on this and has been kind of my, my Will Riker on this. He's been hearing a lot of DMs from me every day, but just checking stuff off him. And we've got Kevin Beckett doing our social media I mentioned earlier, and Jordan Douglas-Smith, uh, who uh, does is a bit of a sword and sorcery scholar focused on uh, Carl Edward Wagner's writing. Uh, he, bless him, brings his copy editing skills to help us really like up the level of professionalism on this thing, which to me is so important. And so I reached out to some various uh, writers and artists, and over the course of the summer, built this thing from nothing, uh, telling us, saying, being upfront with all the creators involved. I said, look, I have time and I have skills. I don't have money. But maybe we work together, we make this issue zero for, for nothing, I sell it for next to nothing, you know, no profit, like I mentioned, cheap as possible, and then ramp up to this Kickstarter. So, um, and I'm bringing all those creators back for the paid issues, of course, geez. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so the, you know, I mean, you gotta, right? Yeah. Uh, and also, I want to, I really enjoyed working with all of them. Uh, so, yeah, uh, so the, the issue zero came out, I uh, I said, it'll be out in September, September 30th, I kept my promise, <laughs> right at the last end of the month, came out. And since then, you know, it's it's... Not been too shabby. I mean, downloads and physical copies combined, we've had about 1,400 people check it out at this point. And I've had too many people say, yeah, I read issue zero. It's great. I'm backing the Kickstarter to uh, to dismiss it. Like, it definitely has worked to some degree. Whether or not it has worked entirely, I don't know until the Kickstarter is over or we hit 100%. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because you, because normally uh, it would seem or be kind of uncouth to say, hey, bunch of people, let's work for, for, uh, you know, uh, for free and see what happens. But, but I think what you have is a unique situation and that there's a lot of people wanting something to, to, to develop and to grow and there's no means for it to do it. So I think it's, it's kind of interesting where, you know, rather than somebody just saying, Oh, I want to do a D and D adventure, everybody throwing yeah. for free. This is saying, no, we as a community want to see this writers, 
artists and they're saying, you know what, we are willing to, to do this. And I think that's a good thing for other people to realize that, you know, rather than talk about why things aren't happening, get a group of people that are willing to, to band together and, and actually do something. Yeah, yeah. Like be proactive. Like I said, there was a lot of talk. And actually, Scott Oden deserves credit for kind of nudging me when the talk was going on a little too long, being like, you should probably make something. <laughs> that was part of what led to me doing the magazine. Because, yeah, I mean, you can, because something I, I maybe have left out part of a big, well, no, I haven't actually. I said the inclusion thing was that was a big part of what motivated the people as well. As we were community people, we want to see this and grow. We also want to see it become less homogenous. And all the creators involved were like, yeah, let's, let's, let's do that. Let's create this magazine that's like a demonstration of that. Uh, and so make a point of uh, you know having queer creators having queer characters having you know everything you can think of that's just yeah like i say not just me but not not me either i mean we're not burning down the past with this thing one of the contributors we got to issue zero was david c smith who was one of the guys who uh he he came in near the back end of the second wave of sword and sorcery his first publication started with like a character called oron in the late 70s he also teamed up with uh, i want to i always bugger the name sorry uh tyranny i want to say uh robin robert Tierney? Shoot, sorry, folks, but you, you, you can Google the Red Sonja novels, David C. Smith, you'll get the other guy, Tierney. Uh, I'm forgetting his first name. Um, but yeah, he did a bunch of, bunch of stuff, and then unfortunately got to live through, as I say, that kind of deflation in the 80s. But um, we took a break, he never stopped, and he actually came out with a great novel uh, just two years ago called Sometime Lofty Towers, which I cannot recommend enough. If you've ever seen Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, it's kind of like that, but sword and sorcery. So good. Uh, so yeah, I, I wanted to have not only, I want to not only ignore, uh, you know, you know, part of inclusion is thinking of older writers, right? You don't want to put them out to pasture, but also I was thinking of, uh, just, yeah, there's a guy who's got a straight line from now to the last sort of major period of SNS history. And I want that as a part of this project. So the history is important as much as the looking forward and trying to make it a bigger, more inclusive, more boundary pushing storytelling kind of place. Yeah. I think the thing too, right. It, in it's, if you focus things right, in a lot of different ways, you know, you think about you, you, you want everybody, and and if the, you can't be everything to everybody, but uh, but I think in the sword and sorcery genre, it's very easy to open up in different areas that that actually it, it works for everybody. It doesn't have to be, it, you know, it's not like um, probably a lot of other genres or things. It's just like, you know, the, the story is the story is the main thing, and people can get behind it. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's something too, right? You know, sometimes you get skeptics who'll be like, oh, uh, inclusion is an important, intentional part of what you're doing. Well, does that mean you sacrifice the quality of stories? Do you give someone a story uh, slot in your magazine just because I don't know they're gay or whatever? And it's like, no, man, you can have two parallel priorities <laughs> and you can you can achieve both, you know, quality stories and not having a totally homogenous table of contents without sacrificing anything. And I got to say, like, if you see a drawing or a story in the magazine, it's because I thought it was great. And it can either be great in the sense of like, you know, they are someone who I feel has really mastered their craft. I mean, Michael Moorcock, obviously, <laughs> going into the new issues, uh, you know, or it can be someone who I feel is like a rising talent and they've got something really good going and I want to help them develop their career. I mean, there's a bunch of names I can mention, but like Bryn Hammond or uh, Kirk A. Johnson come to mind uh, off the top. Uh, so, you know. Um, Whatever, whatever's in there, it's in there because I think it's great. It's just that I'm sort of taking measures to make sure that I don't do something that can happen a lot with well-intentioned, uh, well, white guys who say they want to try and, you know, add uh, more diversity, more inclusion, make a, make a space friendlier to more <laughs> wider groups of people. 
but then they just kind of don't think hard enough about what they're doing and you kind of blink and it's like oh it's like 10 white guys and one white woman or whatever involved with the project like it is, you know they'll just kind of fall into the cozy like well yeah. you know but i'm not intentional not trying to be bad just just you know it's, we all kind of we all kind of settle back to like what we're familiar with more familiar with tends to be us right yeah so so yeah, uh, just me just trying to check myself the whole way through this thing. You know, I'm like, all right, let's make sure not to do 10 Olivers in the magazine, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it is. it can be very easy. And it, I'm just, you know, it's good to know that there were circles uh, within that have already established that you're able to kind of make that 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 call to, you know, to authors. And I'm sure there's probably some that you may need to, to track down. And uh, but it's it's good that, you know, the Internet provides that community. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how this would have happened without the internet. I mean, as I said, it was born out of a Discord server, but also I do plan to eventually do open submissions, but I am not currently doing open submissions. And that's for a bunch of reasons. One of them is that I just want to like get each step or each portion of the magazine process really down before I add another one. So like we made it in the summer without any real money involved and just threw it on Amazon print on demand because like whatever, right? Uh, now it's like I'm tackling uh, professional printing and, of course, crowdfunding. These are big things. And I want to make sure I got those down. And if we do the crowdfunding, then eventually down the line, I'll go, okay, now we're going to add open submissions and I'll tackle that challenge. But in the meanwhile, what I've been doing, and this is part of what helps me avoid, as I say, accidentally going, whoops, and white guys, uh, is uh, doing uh, only commissioned stories. I've been looking at people who I really dig and reaching out and going, hey, do you want to do something with the magazine? And yeah, I'm really happy with the people I got. I think we have a great table of contents going on. And it's not just people within the scene. That's another aspect of expanding the scene, right? If you just keep going to the same pool of authors over and over again, it doesn't get bigger. So we've got plenty of real SNS, you know, people in it. Again, Moorcock, David C. Smith is coming back, for example. And, you know, Bryn Hammond, I mentioned, is no uh, slowpoke with this stuff. Um, but I've also reached people who maybe have only dabbled in it or not written much at all, such as Canadian horror author Gemma Files. Because horror is such a big part of sword and sorcery, right? The sorcery isn't, generally speaking, your sort of... Um, with you know, pointy hat shooting fireballs? Yeah, I mean, it, it can be, right? I mean, we're talking about a whole <laughs> genre over almost 100 years. But broadly speaking, um, especially in its roots, uh, it is a very... Magic is a very dark and dangerous and terrifying thing that is usually used at a terrible cost. It tends to not be used by the main character. If it is, they really suffer for it. Um, and it's frightening. It's horrifying. It's often Lovecraftian, you know, if, right. it, whether or not it literally has tentacles, et cetera. Uh, you know, it's 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 cosmic. It's it's weird. It's not systematized. It's not, you know, magic isn't just treated as like another technology. Weird creatures are not just like another part of the ecosystem. You know, They're, they'll tend to be pretty unique. And, and I, I personally like that. I mean, I enjoy many flavors. We all do. And I want to make clear I'm not pursuing anything by saying what I love about sword and sorcery. But one of the things I love about sword and sorcery is I find I am surprised by it a lot more than more heavily codified fantastic uh, fiction. And right. I always find it very strange that you would want to read a fantasy novel, let's say, where there's very clear, highly detailed magic systems and things like that that make it not fantastic, right? Like, but that's what fantastic means. is It's outside the realm of comprehension, beyond what we really understand, uh, you know, volatile, breaking rules. I don't know. That's how I feel. Uh, and it's one of the things I love the most about it. And it's part of why... As I said, I reached out to uh, Gemma Files to bring her horror chops to the table. Uh, or, you know, Margaret Killjoy is another author. I reached out to her because I had really enjoyed a book by her called uh, Country of Ghosts, which has a lot to do with the old civilization barbar barbarism sort of thematic territory of sword and sorcery, even though you would never call it an SNS novel. 
And she's also done a great series of adventure novellas for Tor that are set in the contemporary era and kind of have almost a Scooby-Doo gang kind of thing going on. But nonetheless, that is about outsiders who are, you know, traveling from place to place, encountering weird, legitimately magic stuff. You know, it's again, it's like you can see the sword and sorcery in it, in it all, even if you're not literally seeing, you know, a Conan or an Elric or something like that. Um, and I think it's going to really enrich the next two issues uh, to have these authors from both within and without the scene. Um, yeah, so that's another part of it. Like I say, the whole boundary pushing, trying to grow this thing uh, attitude that we're taking with the magazine. Yeah, and even talking with Mark uh, last time, you know, he he brought up that you know, you know, there's probably going with the comics and a lot of mass media. There's not a lot of nuance, but there was a lot of nuance with the original works of Howard, yep. and it, it gets overgrown. And, and not that there's anything wrong with you know uh, reading comic books of just you know and watching movies of just uh, you know of I guess popcorn munching, you know. That's what gets uh, a lot of us started, action. man. Like so many people yeah. started with the Schwarzenegger movie. I started with uh, probably that too uh, at some point. I know I watched it, but uh, Savage Sword of Conan, the big magazine reprints. Uh, some of them were adaptations of original Howard stories. A lot of them were kind of spinning out, coming up with their own stuff, you know? Like it's if it gets people started, it gets people started. Right. But, and also people like they like it. But it, I think the thing is, is like he mentioned, and I think it's probably true, is that for a lot of people, they don't realize that there is a lot of nuance going on in the original story. That Conan wasn't just a, 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 you know, a, a, a thick headed bug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he tends to survive more by his wits than his sword arm and frequently encounters things that swords are no good with. He has to figure out another way around it, you know, even and running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> even honestly, sometimes, yeah, even running, man. I always admire that because it makes it when he, when he's tough, it feels more meaningful when sometimes you see him go in the face of like a big terrifying creature yeah. uh, or whatever that makes no sense. And, you know, it's non-Euclidean or whatever. And also to the writing itself, like Howard, you know, I've said this many times, Howard draped sword and sorcery over other genres like a cloak. You get seriously like Western stories beyond the Black River. You get seriously like locked room mysteries. Uh, you know, you, you get all kinds of other genres, hard boiled, a lot of hard boiled elements in it, especially the stories where Conan tends to get like knocked out and then that's a scene transition. Whoa, that's hard boiled for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Noirish detective, whatever. And so, you know, it comes back to this thing that um if I can if I can push someone else's thing for a moment, I'm a there's a lot of definitions of sword and sorcery, and I have joked more than once that a classic like to me it's almost part of sword and sorcery to argue over the definition of it uh, i just think it's fun i never try to get definitive or gatekeepery about it that's so boring when people get gatekeepery about things but my favorite definition is written by an author named brian murphy uh it's in his book flame and crimson a history of sword and sorcery i strongly recommend it i love this book it's gonna make your to be red pile explode if you read it so beware okay. uh but yeah it's a great history of the subgenre i strongly recommend it and part of why i do is it features my favorite definition it what makes it my favorite amongst other things is that unlike every other definition i've seen it is intentionally designed to be flexible so what brian does is he's like okay well here's like seven things that you generally encounter in what I, you know, the author of this book, I'm calling sword and sorcery fiction. Generally speaking, you get outsider heroes. Yet, generally speaking, they are personally motivated, personal mercenary motivations. They are rarely, if ever, trying to save the world. That's where you get into heroic fiction or the high fantasy of Tolkien and stuff, right? Like, they're out to take care of themselves one way or another, even if it's just surviving another day. You know, love crew, what I was talking about earlier with the, the weird and dark and terrible sorcery or, you know, the horror Lovecraftian elements. You know, short episodic tales. It's damn near never you're going to find a sword and sorcery novel, even that's much more than a couple hundred pages. Uh, they just don't do the big phone books by and large. 
Um, and uh, historical influences. Remember, I was talking about Hanavar earlier, right? Like that's quite common uh, to have these stories be rooted in history, even if they take place in like a secondary world. And uh, shoot, of course, I'm going to forget the seventh one when I'm on camera. But anyway, there's these seven yeah, Exactly. And what I love about it is he, he's, he walks you through them all, gives you great examples, talks about them. And, he's, and he never tells you like what the magic number is. He never says, well, you got to have four or at least, or it's not sword and sorcery. He just says, look, man, four or five, whatever feels right to you as the reader or the author. It feels right. It feels like sword and sorcery. It's got enough of this stuff going on. Congratulations, you're reading or writing sword and sorcery and i love that and i tend to think when you know i was working with the the authors uh doing uh, our editing of their stories in the summer uh and writing my own stuff you know i tend to think of the seven things but i tend to think of it almost like a really demented wrestling ring where you've got like seven posts marking boundaries right you gotta have something otherwise it's just a blank page and it's nothing right you got those seven posts but what runs between those seven posts what runs between the posts in a wrestling ring highly elasticated rope that can be pushed way outside of the original boundaries and left off of and catapulting yourself to doing all kinds of crazy moves and stuff. You know, I just think you can do so much. <laughs> so passionate. I'm punching my mic. I think you can do so much with sword and sorcery. Uh, just overall, man, I love it. I love it so much, you know, and, and to, to me also, like I, I just, there's all sorts of other bits and pieces. Like I love how the characters generally speaking are punching up. You know, they tend to strike back against your corrupt merchants and kings and whatnot. And also, and this is so key, I think, also to the inclusion element, but just in general, it's really gratifying, uh, no matter who you are, um, is the fact that the characters, by and large, certainly going back to our big man there, Conan, are people who never really apologize for who they are. And when they sort of triumph in their stories, they generally speaking don't assimilate and become like the knight or the head cop of the kingdom. They don't give up who they are. Conan, of course, some people who already know this, uh, famously becomes a king near the end of his life, but he's still a Sumerian at heart. He never, you know, he's king of another country, but he never gives up who he is. And who he is is a big core of what saves him. So to me, it's like you have these characters who are looking at the world and saying, you don't tell me who I am. I tell you who I am. And that applies to so many people. But boy, doesn't that make you think of like, you know, it makes me always think I, I have like, I want to see, a, and I haven't seen this yet. I'm not saying no one's ever written it, but I have not yet seen it. I would love to see a, a trans barbarian or trans, you know, a sword and sorcery character because, you know, I'm telling you who I am. You're not telling me who I am, you know? Uh, I just think it fits that mold so well. It's so ripe for that uh, amongst other characters and stuff. So, yeah, it's just something I think anybody can identify with. And so when I look around and, and I see, like, well, there's some people, but mostly it's guys like me. Okay, we can, there's room to grow. There's room for possibility in the, you know, on the page, at the keyboard, in the fandom. Well, it's kind of like I the comic book stuff I've given as I've given up. I've I've slowed down. It's been a long time, but you know, coming back with the the Marvel movies and different things, it's like you know, we've had I've had X number of years. I used to be probably more of the you know in the day more of the proponent of like you know keeping canon and don't be just changing things, be changing things. But now I'm to the point where it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, black people need heroes too, and brown people need heroes too and and you know just the same old white guys doing the same old thing it's really not very interesting and my age it's like i'd much rather see like i'd rather see peggy carter's captain america and then kind of go through the the nuance of what does that mean and what social implications would it be for a person in the 40s you know going through that as being a woman i think that it would be a whole lot of fun like much more interesting than just you know just stomping around going pew 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 and being a bad guys with CGI. 
Well, and the thing is, you can still have the pew 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 and the CGI, and like I still enjoy that stuff too, man. This is what this is the thing I always feel like I have to reinforce and like highlight and underline is inclusion doesn't mean exclusion. Right, it literally means the opposite. <laughs> right, and so you, I I I totally love you know crappy B movies. I totally love like there's one guy in Sword Sorcery I should bring up. Just keep it within the genre. His name is Lynn Carter. He's a notorious figure because on the one hand he was an amazing uh, editor in terms of his impact on the genre he and other guys Frank DeCamp are why we still know who Conan is they kept him alive through a series of paperback collections in the 60s that are infamous for a bunch of reasons they kind of both rise and mess with the writing a lot but it kept Conan around right and he published a whole bunch of other stuff he has a series called the or did a series pardon me it was decades ago called the world's end which is in short like he-man just doing all the cocaine and it is so fun but it's badly written and it's kind of explosions and oh hey now there's a tiger man why is there a tiger man i don't know it's cool like <laughs> i enjoy that stuff also <laughs> you know and i think that's something i, I would love to if, if i could do anything to try through this magazine to try and uh read the idea it's that we really need to beware in our fiction and our uh, enjoyment of storytelling in general in any medium we need to beware false binaries false choices Brother, we can have all ice cream flavors, yes. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, yeah, but I hear you as being, I myself, you know, love comic books. I worked at a store uh, for four years when I was younger. Um, and I still sometimes like to check in and be like, oh, yeah, you know, how are my old boys going? How's Nightwing doing? Whatever. But I'm always a little more interested when I see newer characters or people trying different stories, you know? And I think, yeah, like with Sword and Sorcerer, I think you can... I think there's a lot of room. I think there's a lot of room. And I, I think also talking about the different I stories, I, I think so the more fun... Uh, Marvel movies have been ones that actually leaned into other genres, like uh, the Winter Soldier being a 70s spy yeah. movie and Ant-Man being a heist. I mean, that's what also made them fun is because they were comic flavored other genres. Totally. And like Ant-Man, I mean, there you go, right? I love the uh, first Ant-Man movie. And it's both like kind of heist comedy hijinks. Yeah. And then it was also just the pure visceral kind of the pew pew thing. But it's like, ah, I got big. Ah, I made another thing small. Yeah. I can't, I, I clap like a goddamn seal. I just love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I mean, that's what made it fresh, really, was I think they just took a different, took a, a common, you know, type or whatever and just put it into new tropes. Yeah, yeah. And just and having fun, right? That's the other thing too. You know, I, I again I I worry sometimes that people think like, you know, here I'm talking very much about what well, we gotta, you know, we wanna grow this group, um, we wanna make it more inclusive, we wanna get more people in there, blah blah. And it sounds like, oh, he's talking about politics. It's like, no, man, I'm just talking about having more fun by including more people. But then also like having fun. Like there's fun in the stories in issue zero, I feel. There is uh certainly one story by J.M. Clark. One of one of the fun things of editing, right, was going through each story and going, okay, I can have one illustration for each story. What's that illustration going to be of? What's like the moment we want to have? And some of the stories I sort of thought about it, waffled, you know, went back and forth a little. Jam Clark's story, uh, The Vapors of Zanai, uh, had a moment very early on. This is not a spoiler. It's like the opening thing, just telling you, like, here's the story you're getting, folks, of a character who is fighting with a wizard and he kind of knocks the guy down and rides him like a sled down the side of a mountain, like shredding him, like cheese gratering him on the rocks. Yeah. It's so gonzo and yeah. wild and over the top. And I just read that sentence and I was like, I, I didn't even read, I didn't finish the story. I just read that sentence and I was like, yeah, that's the illustration. And I perhaps have shared it too much online when I've been trying to share examples of the magazine because I just love it so much. Beautifully illustrated, by the way, by Morgan King, who, cool connection there, Morgan King is the director and also involved a lot with animation 
of The Spine of Night, which is a friggin' fun sword and sorcery rotoscoped action movie, right? Like the old Ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings, yeah. that kind of thing in the 70s or the 80s, Fire and Ice and all that. Yeah, he and a bunch of other people spent like seven, eight years working their asses off, and they made that, and they got Lucy Lawless in it. Uh, Patton Oswalt also is also wow. a role, and a few other guys, yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, that's really cool that I've got him tied into the magazine, and I think it's part of what has made me feel like, you know, I think this thing has some legs, I think this might go somewhere, because the scene, yeah, as we were talking about earlier, is really come around it. You know, I've got um, Morgan King I was mentioning there. Obviously, the biggie is uh, Michael Moorcock, for those listening who are like, who's Michael Moorcock? Look him up. Trust me, he is a living legend with no dust on him. You know, the man's 82, bless him for committing to a new story with a magazine with some guy he doesn't know. Uh, but he is a living legend who, once you start becoming familiar with his works, including his sort of main character, his almost anti-Conan, Elric of Melnibene, uh, you'll see so much stuff that you've watched be echoed and referenced in more contemporary works. Neil Gaiman has said many times in interviews, that he was deeply influenced by Moorcock's writing and took certain concepts in that friendly way that writers borrow from each other. George R.R. R. Martin practically owes him royalties. If you watch House of the Dragon and you see Matt Smith's character in his full armor, by God, he looks like a stepped out of the pages of, of you know, Moorcock's Elric. You know, concepts of chaos and law and the big cosmic balance and that kind of thing that you see a lot in, say, Games Workshop's uh, Warhammer 40K and fantasy lines, straight out of Moorcock, shamelessly, shamelessly taken right. from Moorcock's writing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, I got so excited about Morcock. I, I lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah, the community came around. So I feel, so, I feel, I feel extremely, you know, lucky to have him in it. And then I've got, you know, as I say, scholars of the genre. Brian Murphy has contributed, from, you know, from Flame and Crimson. There, uh, Nicole Emelhaines has a great uh, essay in our first issue. And uh, Milton Davis uh, is a publisher. He's an author, and bless him, he's going to be doing a profile on one of the great historical figures of sword and sorcery as a subgenre. Charles Saunders, who was the first, um, first known anyway, people, other people may have written under pseudonyms and been hidden, but he was the first uh, known uh, black author of Sword and Sorcery. He came in there in the 70s with his, what he liked to call, and the name is still used today, Sword and Soul, as it sounds, you know, it's uh, basically just saying, hey, let's tell some Sword and Sorcery stories, but instead of rooting them in Western medieval culture or Western kind of Bronze Age, whatever, we'll root it in, you know, various different African cultures. And so his character, Amaro, was his main one. Uh, and Desoye, the spirit woman, uh, was another one. And they're great stories. They are great stories unto themselves, aside, but they're also a brush, uh, pardon me, a breath of fresh air if you haven't you know, come across that yet. And Milton's carrying that tradition strong with his publishing, and he's going to write a profile on Charles, who he got to work with before uh, the profile that perished a couple of years ago. Um, so that's another, uh, you know, again, side of the community who seeing what I'm doing and is going, yeah, I want to be a part of that. I want to help make that happen. So this is all stuff that, as, a, as an editor, makes you feel pretty good it makes you feel like yeah i think there's i think there's something here and you know that energy i was describing from that big three-day mega conversation on the server last spring well you know we've got 10 11 days left we've got um a little over fifteen thousand dollars raised we hit the uh 50 funded point in less than 24 hours that felt great now of course we're enjoying anyone who's ever run a kickstarter who's listening you know what i'm talking about you hit the uh the slow grind of the middle uh, so it's taken us another two weeks to get to 75% from 50, but we did it. And uh, gosh, I'm really hoping we make it to the through to the back end there. Uh, maybe even get one or two of our stretch goals. Our very first stretch goal doubles the amount of interior illustrations. Oh, I want that so bad. <laughs> so yeah. Um, gosh, I just keep I keep slipping into sales pitch mode. But uh, my apologies, as you know, as you're wrapping up your Kickstarter, right? That's kind of what your brain is while it's running. It's very well, hard. No, I wish my brain was more mode. that way. I'm abs- absolutely. I'm actually the opposite. Oh no! 
you're like, don't, don't back me. I hate my project. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that bad, but I, I really, really have a hard time. Uh, I really have a hard time. Oh, promoting. Well, you're not alone. I mean, I, I, I'm lucky in the sense that I was raised by two self-employed artists and they really drilled into me from a young age, some pretty valuable lessons about like, don't apologize for yourself, which is what a lot of writers do, you know, or artists, they, they were like, oh, sorry to mention my Patreon. Oh, sorry, I'm selling things. Oh, sorry, I exist. It's like, no, 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 don't do that. Because that is the number one way anyone trying to put out a creative endeavor shoots themselves right in the foot right oh yeah and i and i it's not in in a lot of ways the podcast is also a means for me to market without actually marketing well it means you know it is in a sense of like getting your face out there i mean i think i think one thing also that makes it difficult for people sometimes is um the associations with terms Right. Like I was just talking about networking with some people recently and they were like, oh, I don't like networking and slimy. It makes me think of like, I don't know, Gordon Gecko or something. They just makes you know, makes you make all these gross associations that you have with like shitty experiences you've had with you know, spam emails and stuff. Right. And it's like, yeah, that is bad. But you know what networking is when it's like good for you and the other person? It's when you're just making friends who like the same thing as you and are also trying to do things. You know, when I mentioned earlier about like, I, I said to the server, look, man, a magazine's a big deal. I can't make it on my own, you know? And uh, one of the people, Nathan Webb, he had uh, already put out two issues of his own cozy fantasy, very different sort of sorcery. I love it, man. Uh, You're know, talking about very tastes. A uh, magazine called Wingraph, which I also recommend. Uh, he put out two issues of that. I knew he could do layout and design. And so we got chatting and just were like, hey, I, you know, he'd been also very big in those conversations. So we networked. We just talked and we're like, well, well, do you want to work together? Oh, sure. Let's give it a whirl. Let's see how that, well, how would that be? Blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, like, you know, he's my big confidant on this and I couldn't have done it without him. That was networking, right? That was right. not sitting in a room with people at a party where you kind of keep looking over the guy's shoulder to see if someone more important will talk to you, <laughs> which is, I think, the kind of slimy thing. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> well, and that's also been the other aspect for the, the podcast, too, is is in a, is for networking. In fact, you know, the thing I've realized is we're all. We're not all the same, but we're all pretty much the same. <laughs> yeah, there's some core attributes we all got going on. Yeah. But I'm saying is that people in this creative space. Are hugely have huge degrees of of crossover similarities and. Maybe not similarities, but we are all the same tribe. We all are. We just don't know it. We're all friends. We just don't know it. Yeah, yeah. It's no, just you, insane. You what can... we're doing doesn't make any sense. There is. I, I try and lay out the logic of it. It makes no sense. But yet here we are. Well, yeah. I mean, certainly if I was trying to get rich, it wouldn't be this. I had one guy early on accuse me of an indie pub cash grab. And I was like, yeah, tell me, <laughs> tell me you've never tried to do anything in publishing without telling me you've never tried to do anything in publishing. Like, are you serious? I, I live in Toronto and I don't live that far geographically from like the stock exchange and like Bay Street, which is basically Wall Street here. Uh, you know, if I, if I wanted a cash grab, I would go get an MBA. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's yes. a lot of other ways of doing it. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, you could go work at, at a, at a um, you know, like a Menards or some sort of lumber, uh, 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 lumber, what's what I'm looking for, like home decor, whatever, but yeah, yeah. hardware store. And make probably more money for your time. I mean, <laughs> become a plumber. You know, that's a yeah. good trade. <laughs> I mean, you just do a side job. You can just do a side job of just a, a little bit minimum wage, and you'd be your 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 wages per hour would be more. Quite likely, quite likely. I mean, I I 
I try to think I have found a balance between being foolish and, and letting myself have aspirations. You know what I mean? I don't expect to get rich <laughs> indie pop cash grab, uh, but I, I, I definitely have long-term plans that if these first two issues fund, I'm going to be able to start working towards. Obviously, we want to make more issues of the magazine, right? I've already thinking about issues three and four and what we might do in those, but also thinking about anthology-style special issues like a sword and sorcery and romance issue. Or I still got to think about the name. I don't want to call it Greybeards because that sounds like it's just dudes only, but you know, I like the idea of an issue that's older authors writing about older characters, you know, and that kind of thing. So like mini anthologies, like, you know, magazine format anthology style, but then even getting to the point where I, like I said, I mentioned, I love the novella. I would love to maybe do a Kickstarter for like quarterly novella subscription. You know, everybody signs up to get four slim little beautiful hardcovers, each with a different author and artist pairing, you know, like that would be so badass. So, you know, maybe eventually some money, you know, through building a little publishing company. Um, but, uh, but yeah, exactly. If you, 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 you people do this stuff because they love it. They, right. they better love it, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, and, and and to what you're saying about like there being commonalities across the board, you know, the easiest one is role playing game. Like the subject matter is relatively speaking very similar to sword and sorcery. There's also a very strong indie pub scene, zine scene, individual modules, smaller to medium sized publishers. Like I mentioned earlier, Goodman Games. They've been doing strong. Actually, I don't know if I'm insulting them by calling them medium size anymore. But you get, but you know, they had to build up from nothing, right? Uh, and so, yeah, like there's just this kind of DIY, man, I want to see something, let's get together and make something, you know, kind of thing that I just love so much. Uh, and I, you know, connected with, as I say, through the indie film scene, uh, and I never tried to make my own comic book, but I worked at a store for four years and I met a lot of people doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, there's this energy I love, I love, and yeah, you're going to try and connect all these people and you get more energy coming together to make more great things. Right. Yes. And that's, that's, that's the thing when you're excited about something and then you find somebody else that, that tunes into that frequency. It's just like, uh, it's pretty amazing. Oh no, it feels good. It feels so good. And that's a big part of how over the summer I, I found out by making issue zero. Oh yeah, actually I do. One. Cause it felt so good getting excited about each stage, figuring out stuff and getting to treat. Here's another fun thing about making yourself a, an editor or a publisher. By the way, folks, you just decide you are. That's how you do it. <laughs> you just decide you are and you make a thing. That's how you do it. It's not, it's not a mystery. Um, but yeah, uh, working with the uh, the writers in particular, but the artists as well, I appreciated this. Um, the writers, I know their side of things more intimately. Um, it was nice to treat creative people the way I always want to be treated as a creative person. And, you know, isn't that nice when you get the opportunity to be like, yeah, I'm going to treat them with respect. I'm going to, you know, uh, work with them and keep my promises and just, yeah, just be nice. Just be nice. Like my editing process, I won't get into all of it, but a big part of it was right up front. I said, look, I don't want to step over your voice with mine, but I've got a voice for the magazine, right? So we got to figure out how to basically like harmonize. And so I would say to them, you know, after they already had a good idea of what I'm, what I'm going for, I would say, okay, well, what is the, you know, initial point of inspiration for your story? What was the thing that got you really excited? Because I want to tap into what got you really excited, right? And they talked to me about it, whether it was a theme or an image or whatever. And then I would just go, okay. And I would tailor my feedback to try and like amplify and grow upon what made them passionate about their stories. Because I want editors I work with to do that with me. I've worked with editors in a variety of contexts, whether it's novels, short stories, or uh, screenplays. And I've had good, bad, and the ugly with that, man. And so, you know, <laughs> it was nice. Well, it's funny. I was just to interview, uh, they were talking about, uh, are you familiar with Rick Rubin, the, the music producer? Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, they, I can't remember how it was asked, but he basically says his goal was to, he's on, uh, I guess, being interviewed on a podcast. 
is to find the authenticity of the artist. So he wasn't, he had worked with any artist. Cause you look at like, like Adele to BC boys to, you know, you know, to whatever uh, other groups he's done. It's just Johnny cash to whoever it's just like, oh. you know, it wasn't like there's the, the Rick Rubin sound. It was the, no, I want to find get into authenticity of the artist and for them to find it into, into amplify, like kind of maybe not amplify, but you know, but like your statement is like, I'm not really here to tell you what to write. I'm here to find out really what that is and make sure we're in alignment. Not only are we in alignment, but that that voice and that, that passion, you know, is clearly communicated. Exactly. Exactly. Cause people pick it up off the page. Like you, you will make a better story every time. And if you try and, you know, hammer it into a shape of like, well, I really wanted a pirate story with this and this, you know, you get hung up on a lot of specific tropes or whatever the heck and just, yeah, ugh, it's, it's not fun. Like I said, I've been on the receiving end of uh, not great editing uh, and not great uh, teachers of writing uh, when I was younger and taking classes uh, more often. Uh, whew, boy, you know, I will never forget a screenwriting class I took when I was like 20, where I came, we came in, we all had samples of our scripts, right? With the first 25 pages. And uh, we went around the class being like, my story is blah, blah, my story is blah, blah. We got to me. And you just need to know, my story opened with two detectives and one of them killed the other guy. He kills his partner in the first few pages. And then we go off into the story. And the teacher just looked at me and was like, Oliver, why would I want to watch a story with that character? Like the guy who kills the other guy, his partner. I took it as a challenge rhetorically. So I was like, oh, well, I think it'd be compelling because that's as far as I got in my sentence. The teacher shut me down. I was like, who would want to watch a movie about an unlikable character? And then just my brain melted out of my asshole as I thought of a billion movies that are really yeah. successful <laughs> with characters I would never want to hang out with. Right. <laughs> but like, and this, that is so like that experience obviously stuck with me, you know, it's all these years later. But I, I remember how it made me feel. And like, I, I never want to do that to a writer. You know, I never want to do that to an artist if I could, you know, or anybody else. So, yeah, I, I think, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm just kind of talking around the houses, I guess, about like the collaborative thing. But I love the collaborative thing. Uh, you know, oh, it's so good. Um, yeah, and I think, too, as I've been expanding out, it's like, you know, there's a point where, you know, it's communication. Um, there's a lot of skills that kind of go on and also learning how to communicate with people. I mean, that's, it's not something that's always very easy um, because, because really a lot of times writers and artists, they, they want some sort of clarity. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You, you can't you, you, concise being concise and clear is what I aim for. How I, when I talk with writers, not when I'm yeah. on podcasts, obviously uh, with the conciseness, but uh, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you've got to try and just really distill what you want from them into an essence rather than uh, a long ramble that they have to set. So there's there's several projects that have going on. And so I approached a fellow and I said, well, there's this. It is very defined. And it is this. <laughs> but they got another one where it's a mess. Like it is completely a mess. And if you get involved with it, it's a mess. And this other one's it's it's it more, it's also defined but i don't need anything right away but it's just like you know it's it's is you know i guess let them know what they're going to be in for if they jump on a project that it's not well defined <laughs> like, yeah, you're gonna help me yeah. define this as we go through this so if you're yeah. good with that <laughs> but if they're not good with it i don't want them being part of it because they may not appreciate the chaos and they they shouldn't have to 
No, no. I mean, definitely the chaos that the stage you're talking about was definitely yeah before the writers got involved much, which was we had those conversations on the server or like when I got Nathan involved and stuff and him and I had a lot of sifting through the chaos and being like, what is the magazine even going to look like? I don't know, man. You know, uh, maybe we'll just rip off this thing. Wait, that's terrible. Don't do that. Uh, yeah. All, all those kinds of conversations. I know what you're talking about. And actually before I lose the, the thread, what you were saying earlier about the podcast being really good for networking. Oh my God, you're not kidding. You know, I do a literary podcast called so I'm writing a novel where it's me kind of trying to build an audience for a novel that's you know, it's going to take a minute. It's a novel, but I'm writing it. And I do episodes kind of talking about the craft side of how I create it. And in between those craft episodes, I do interviews with people. And most people involved with Issue Zero were former guests of the podcast. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'd already developed, like, I talked to them and I was like, you know what? If you can hang with someone and enjoy their company for an hour or two hours, whatever your podcast goes for, um, you can probably work with them. And if you also like what they create, which you probably do, otherwise, why did you have them on? Uh, you know, eh, it works out pretty okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a fellow that I I I I interviewed on the podcast, and um I didn't know him before then. And we maybe talked a couple other times a little bit, and all of a sudden a random message between the two of us is turned into a partnership uh for a project, which yeah. I do not know him. He doesn't really know me, but whatever reason we just know and and and, and it, I think the thing is, we're both um, have very strong similarities, but we also have differences that that the that help. Like, I don't need for a project. I don't need another Jeff. That's the last thing I need. That's <laughs> yeah, you've already thing. got that covered. You got, yeah, I got the Jeff part covered. I need the yeah. not Jeff covered. <laughs> it's, it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. You got your complimentary, you know, ups and downsies, right? Like, I mean, I'm not as patient as the other guys working on the magazine with me. And I'm glad I've got their patience. <laughs> you know, <brought> <laughs> yeah. So I, when I talk about sometimes even with marriages, um, you know, one, you know, one person's a, I don't mean to negate the brick, but like one person's a brick and one person's a balloon. It's like, you know, the brick kind of needs somebody to kind of pull them along, but yet the, the, the balloon needs somebody to weight them down. It's like between the two, it works out, but yeah. it's, it's, uh, but <laughs> you know, without some sort of anchoring, the balloon just goes off in the stratosphere. Without the balloon, the brick just lays on the ground and doesn't go anywhere. Oh man, absolutely, absolutely. You got you got to try and look for those complementary, you know, as I say, like advantages, disadvantages, whatever you want to put it. I'm, I'm getting back to role playing games there. Yeah, <laughs> you got to check your third ed D and D builds, uh, and then you know, see who's got the right feats. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, and that's just it, and getting to know people. And I think the other thing is 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 learning how to communicate because different people are. You know, we're all different people too. So, you know, even among the writers, so I've, I've, so one thing I found out too is there's a lot of people that say they want to contribute and they say they want to write, but the actual number of people that will actually put a pen to paper is very few. Yeah. Well, I mean, just think back to all those group projects in high school where like <laughs> you got five people at the desks, but uh, three of them are doing it all. Yeah. <laughs> and, but the people I find, you know, it's, it's, it, it kind of builds up and I find another person, I find another person and they are like super solid people, but you know, well, but that's the joy of being an adult, right? You're not stuck with those uh, two at the table who don't do a damn thing. Right. You exactly. Just keep finding no. the, you find the doers and you, you bring them in. <laughs> Yeah, and I think before I kind of thought, well, I'll put out a a a call that would have like ten people, and I figured, okay, I got like ten people to write, but it may just shake down to one person. But but then over time, it's like you do it enough times, and you got a handful of people, and you're good to go. 
Yeah, I mean, that's how I've done group projects. That's how I've done... Uh, I've been lucky. I've, I've built some pretty good role-playing game circles. You know, just keep cycling people into the table, and the ones you stick, stick, and the ones you go away, go away. And eventually, you got five real solid buddies. Uh, you know, you got a good campaign going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm excited. I don't want to talk over you, but I, I'm, I'm very curious about something. Uh, there's a struggle, and I'm wondering how you've wrestled with it, which is how have you uh, dealt with making your project stand out? making people recognize, well, here's why you should check out my thing versus the, you know, 10 other things, 100 other things. So I, I think that's a good question. And I think. So would I, that is a very good question. I think I do. I think I do kind of weird things. Like for instance, um, scoundrels was a little bit different. I don't know how well it stood out during the Madlands. I think I found a really good artist. It's a post-apocalyptic, uh, got a great cover for it. Gary's Appendix, um, I leaned into a weird name. And I'm not sure if you uh, if you understand the... the, the I mean, I, I, can, I, I don't know if you're referring exclusively to Appendix N or just his appendices in general. That he yes, appendices. In yes, so it's Gary's Appendix is, is, <laughs> is, a, is a homage to the weirdness of the, uh, of the first edition Dungeons & Dragons. For um, being the Fly God, uh, I I did a comic I did a comic book. It's a it's a trade paperback format, and I did it as a horror comic, but it's a RPG um, supplement. Oh, okay, cool. So, well, actually, let me. I'll just pull it in a second. Sure. Oh wow, I've got the podcast all to myself while he goes to fetch that. Um... NewEdgeSwordAndSorcery.com. That's where you'll find the magazine issues here. Okay, he's here. <laughs> yeah, so this is like an homage to the creepy and eerie, but it's 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 actually very fitting oh, for a sword and sorcery setting. And it's and the, the thing is, what's strange about it is, it's it's just it's just it's just weird. I don't know how to describe it. I just kind of went to a fugue state. So that's <laughs> kind of odd, especially the the just the you know the 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 flies coming out of the mouth, the horror. Yeah. And then uh and I think for for the scoundrels of uh of Brixton, I ended up hiring a really good artist who created a very dramatic cover that is different. Like it, it's kind of aimed at the traveler audience, mm. but it is a very action crime oriented cover. And so it is different. They could be, it could be by downfall, but it puts a, <laughs> a different look than the standard guys in a spaceship going and doing a job. You know, it. Well, there you go. It's trying to find that different look. You know, I think I was just talking about this with someone the other day. About how like more power to people who love Fifth Ed, but because Fifth Ed D and D has this real house style art, I genuinely have trouble differentiating between the artists who when they yeah. contribute to it. And I will see a new cover, and the subject matter could be pretty cool, but my eyes will sort of half slide off it right away because of the house style thing, making me feel like I've already seen it, even though I haven't. You know. So the thing I think while you're talking about with these inventive covers and art styles, like, yeah, like that's part of how you set yourself apart and you don't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I get, I get the logic behind why big companies do that house style art thing, but I don't know, not, not my, not my jam. Yeah. Well, they need to. And I think that's, that works. And I think that's what's a friend of mine. I think we had a discussion at his Kickstarter. I said, the problem is 
you created a Kickstarter uh, that is um, aimed at fifth edition, hmm. but your trade dress looks nothing like it. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And then no, for I, 5e people, they're, that's the stuff they look for is something that provides that same feel. And I, I don't blame any publisher who, who does, who tries to, to meet their house style like Goodman Games. I keep mentioning they are mostly known for du- their Dungeon Crawl Classics line, which has a very distinct group of artists, three or four guys in particular. You see a lot of the, I suppose, form their house style in a very loose fashion. But then they also put out Fifth Ed products, and you'll often see the covers be very different. From anything else they publish because they're trying to you know meet the trade dress yeah so i do we are um uh chris coger and myself are working on a project and i'm not gonna give it away but we also for these adventures that we're wanting to do we have a very specific format that's different than other formats that we think will be very attractive to people it's not just different to be weird like morkborg i mean it's it'll be both Different format. Hey, no, nothing for wrong with Morkborg, but I know nothing you wrong with Morkborg. Yeah, <laughs> but but it will be it will hit another it will hit another um, sweet spot for that people will be familiar with. So it's going to be imitate another form of art that people already know and love, and imitate that in a way that I think will be very um, uh, synergistic. Cool. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, to the to the you know, I, I really want to have lots of variety with my magazine, but I also want people to always know it's my magazine. So one thing I really looked into that I think will help with that is that uh, I had a friend who does professional like sign and logo design, and I was like, would you help me with this thing? <laughs> and so that's how we got this logo, which I'm going to endeavor to show. It's uh, printed quite large on the back of the hardcover, so I'll put that up there on the camera for those yeah. who are watching, not listening. But for those who are listening, what I'm showing, you can see at the website, newedgethorosorcery.com, it is like a battle axe that could also, if you look at it a certain way, look like a, a Janus-faced thing of two, you know, one face looking left, one face looking right. Or even some people said it looks like kind of like a winged dragon seen from on high, which further evokes fantasy. So, hey, why not? Um, but yeah, that logo is it's going to be on every single issue. And the two t- uh, tone color scheme of it, well, I'm planning to change it with each issue because that blue and beige you see in issue zero, those are eyedropper tool, you know, Photoshop grabbed out of the painting, the original painting by Gilead that we have for the cover. So each one, I'm going to grab colors from the painting and I make that the logo for that one. But it'll always be that logo. Just look for the battle axe, the two-faced battle axe, and you know you're looking at New Edison Sorcery, whether it's well, I think or a feature. You can make it a Rorschach test. Kinda, yeah, yeah. What do you yeah. see? This will tell us about something about you. <laughs> it's my mother. What? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom's a battle axe? Well, <laughs> obvious jokes arise. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Like So there's that, right? Like, layout yeah. design, we thought very hard about, too. Like, I don't know if you had a chance to, to look at the PDFs I sent you earlier, but, you know, we do, yeah. like, three columns. Uh, which not everybody does, uh, and I think a lot of people really enjoyed that. Let's get a lot of text on the page, but not make it seem overwhelming. You know, we're uh, figuring out, uh, you know, like I say, putting art embedded within the stories as well as cover pages, and everybody does that. Again, the logo, you'll see, like, at the end of a story, you get the little logo thingy, and then you get about the author and that little bio we use as a separator there. Um, yeah, like, uh, or, you know, our uh, table of contents, I rather enjoy the design of that. Sorry, listeners, you'll have to go check it out. Again, for free and digital, you can see it. <laughs> But, you know, we worked really hard on getting the look of this thing down so that it looks professional, but also you open the pages and immediately before you even read a single word, you know it's us. And then no other magazine does their layout and design like we do. And we've tried to think of other ways, you know, we're like no other magazine. For example, I think I mentioned earlier, we have a hardcover format. I can say with confidence, uh, there's probably somebody in the globe I'm missing, but in what I've seen, and certainly what I've seen in Sword and Sorcery, no one else does a hardcover 
magazine. That is a very old fashioned thing that I just tripped over uh, when I was advising my parents back in July and they had a copy of something called Horizon from 1968. And it was a goddamn hardcover magazine. It looked beautiful. My dad's using it as a mouse pad, of course. He does not respect uh, books the way I do. And I picked it up and I started looking at it and going, this is classy as hell. And, and, and you know, with evil, the guy who doesn't take care of his books, uh, it survived since 1968 and it still looks pretty okay. And I can read and enjoy everything inside it. And I love that as a guy who loves to collect and hold on to books for a long time. I love the idea of people being able to collect and hold on to, you know, issues of new edge sword and sorcery and have it for a long time. Uh, so yeah, obviously it's more durable. It makes it kind of like, so you can also sell as a mouse pad too. You could sell as a mouse pad. Yeah. Doubles as, <laughs> you know, and also it kind of even frames the pages, right? Unlike yeah. the soft cover, you get little blue you know, gilt around the edge there. You can't see that. Uh, sorry, podcast listeners, but take my word for it. Um, and, uh, you know, the ones we're going to be able to do with the professional publishing are going to have sewn bindings. So they'll last a long time, not like the, the perfect bound thing you get with Amazon uh, print on demand. Which so I think what you got two things, things going on. You have some stuff that are for the people that buy it and hold it. But the yeah. other one I would say is and this is the challenge of the cover grabbing the people to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, well, yeah, dude, that's the thing. So I, I think the, the cover, I really like what we got for issue zero. I was insanely lucky to get someone willing to, uh, as I say, no, nobody was paid. So I was insanely lucky to get a very talented artist, Gilead. He's a modern name, uh, if you want to Google him. Uh, he's got a great grasp of anatomy that you don't see uh, as much as you might like. <laughs> You're looking for artists. And uh, yeah, we worked together and came up with this fun cover again. Sorry, listen, you can't yeah. see this, but what you would see is sort of a group of three different people because we wanted to show more than one kind of person. That's hard to do with a solo protagonist. Uh, so we got kind of a group of, of warriors there facing, you know, various nebulous threats around the margins of the thing and kind of an urban Lankmar kind of maybe situation. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty down with it. We kept the logo and the like name of the thing pretty small because I wanted to show off the painting. So in the soft cover, it just it dominates the cover, right? But then uh, for the hard cover, I thought, okay, well, you know, this is kind of mimicking that older magazine I found, but also I liked what I saw when I found it. I didn't just copy it for the sake of copying it. It's kind of framed. So in a sense, the painting is given, you know, that sort of uh, classy uh, air. The, it know, looks the like Jorun. It looks, the, the font looks, makes me think of uh, Jorun. Oh, I don't know that. What's, uh, what's that? Uh, it, so there, it's called the Sky Realms of Jorun. Okay. And it was a a science fantasy that was probably one of the best, most intriguing settings ever made that probably had rules that never really worked. <laughs> like a lot of the best settings. Yeah. Okay, cool. If you look up Jorun, J-O-U-R-N-E, and you look at the covers, you'll be gobsmacked. You look at the art, you'll be like, what am I even seeing here? This is amazing. This is this is an RPG. And you'd be like, and you kind of flip through those. You're like, I really want to read stories about this. This is weird. This is, I don't even know how to describe. I don't even know how to describe. Anything I describe it would make you think wrong. All right. Well, I'll have to check it out. Thanks, man. I mean, I'm all for looking at you know, cover inspiration, art inspiration across decades and platforms. But, and stuff. but yeah. that font looks very much like Sky Realms of Jeroen, uh, oh, that, okay. what they use. And in fact, I think the way that's framed makes me think of that. Uh, oh, cool. Okay. So, yeah. So there you go. So the painting is kind of framed and you don't even have that little stamp, you know, from the soft cover up top. So you really get to see the whole piece of art to show it off. Uh, again, I, I can't wait to do more issues so we can have more beautifully framed art on the covers like that. So yeah, so the hardcover, which I, I think this came back to, right, us trying to stand out, right? 
So it's highly intentional design that nobody else does. It's hardcover that nobody else does. Uh, going into these new issues, uh, not everybody does nonfiction. So there's that. We have a lot of uh, lovely nonfiction. We've got more Kark, as I mentioned, that nobody else has had going on right now. It's something else we're doing that I looked into again through the community come in is we're actually going to be, I think, the only sword and sorcery magazine with translated fiction. You know, we have an author named Jesus Montalvo who has a story that was in Quinta Raza, which is a Spanish language uh, magazine uh, that uh, is all sword and sorcery. And yeah, we're going to, we have a translator who's, who's currently working hard right now translating his story to be in our magazine. It's part of us trying to connect with other scenes around the globe and let people read stuff that maybe they wouldn't, you know, necessarily know even to look for. So, you know, we've got translated fiction. We've got all this beautiful art, which you can see examples of uh, works by all our 19 artists that we have involved, which is one and two at the Kickstarter. Uh, yeah, yeah, just a, an intentional approach to inclusion, which as far as I know, we're the only ones really doing that uh, in magazine format. So, yeah, I, uh, I, hope, I hope I have not ground um, people down over this last hour just like being like, my magazine. But like, of course, like I'm hyped for it. I'm excited about it. As I said, I'm kind of salesman mode for sure with uh, the Kickstarter. But salesman mode doesn't mean dishonest uh, or sleazy. It means I'm really excited about this thing and I want to see it in the world. I want to read those issues one and two. You know, most of the stories have not been written yet. I've got to get the money to pay the writers. Well, so I think the thing I, I is, right, the stuff happen. we're doing is because we feel passionate about and we want to see this in the world. You're right. And that is, I think, key. That's why this is why you're going through the bathtub curve of Kickstarter with yeah. stomach aches and eating uh, Tums and drinking oh Pepto-Bismol. If I could take a magic pill that would divorce my <laughs> ups and downs of my daily mood from the ups and downs of people get backing it or someone cancels, oh no, <laughs> you know, I can just, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not fun. Um, it's not fun. I, yeah, it, yeah, it's not fun. Um, so, yeah. Nobody and made I, me it, do it, but. <laughs> right, because again, it, it, there's better ways of, if, if it was making money, this is not, this is not the, the this is not the most efficient or best way of making money. I had fantasies, you know, I had real fantasies. I was like, maybe we'll first day fund and I can just chill for the 30 day. No, too soon. Not too ambitious. Maybe next time if we're really, really lucky. But uh, yeah, this time too soon. Uh, half and half in the first 24 hours felt good, though. And I, and I have at least felt we've had a fighting chance all the way through. I think what would have been really soul crushing is if we'd only raised like 10 percent on day one. And then just been like, oh, we're not going to make it, but we can't not try. <laughs> like, I feel like, you know what? I think we got like, good odds, but we got it. We can't, we just can't relax until it's over. You no, know, and, I, and I think for me, it's like, you know, even though I have funded, it's like still the not knowing where it's going to go. And I, and I think, you know, there's for me, so this is a second in the series. Uh, so I plan on doing these regularly, but, you know, there's still like, you know, if I have, like ideally I like to go up with the number of people backing. Cause that would indicate that, you know, people like it, they're continuing with it. And, um, and then I've added more people, you know, so it's like, you know, but if it doesn't, like you start doubting yourself, like, you know, am I messing yeah, up? Water is not encouraging either. It's, <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's better than failing, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, even with the, you know, it's like I had fewer, retail backers for this i'm like in the back of my mind it's like oh did it not sell well for those guys i I feel bad you know i mean so there's a lot of just weird emotions that can go on even oh totally (laughs) and like and like the fact that you don't know right like those retail backers maybe they had a bad year 
Yeah. And they can they just didn't have the money to spend on it. You know, I have noticed a trend where most of the cancellations we've had, and we haven't had too many. So like, oof, you know, but the ones we've had tend to fall Thursday, Friday when people get their paycheck. And then maybe they're like, ah, crap, I don't actually, oh, I don't think I can actually afford, you know, getting that cool magazine. Uh, all right. You know, uh, that's my guess anyway. Or, you know, one person, I won't name them, obviously, but I noticed one person who signed on early for a hardcover, yay, uh, canceled a little while later, boo, uh, I don't know what the story is there, but they came back, I saw their name show up again, uh, getting a softcover, so I was like, hey, awesome, thanks, person, for, you know, I coming on back, I obviously really do want to do it, you just got, you know, a bit pinched, I guess, in between those two points. There's only, there's only two that bother me, one is, if, if people are going to, like, drop, I'd rather just drop towards the end, or during a time where... It goes, I hate it when there's a day where it goes to the negative. Like, if you could just, like, oh man, we, a different day. <laughs> we, we came, there was one day we came close. Thankfully, we did not technically get a negative, but that was a, who that was a bad day. Most, I have been fortunate so far. Every day has been a game. Every day has been like a yeah. okay game to decent gain. Um, except for that one really bad Friday we had. Uh, and, uh, and that was cancellations. We still got people coming in. So we're like, okay, some people still like us. Uh, but uh, but yeah 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 it's it's ah oh, Jesus so emotionally fraught and it's not just me my partner bless her is like just checking like she'll see that we got a new pledge before I do <laughs> you know? so like it's cool that people are invested I mean not just my partner you know uh, but uh, oh yeah it's it's an emotional ride and then people get so invested I uh, you know I think I mentioned a few times now sorry I'm repeating myself we just did seventy five percent the very next day I saw a comment on our Kickstarter of a backer who bless them must really want this thing to happen because they are backing us at the hardcover level while living in Australia. So, you know, shipping, right. Uh, and they backed us on, on launch day and they were like, Hey man, you know, uh, so what do we need? Another hundred backers. Look at that sentence. They said, what do we need? Yeah. Not what do you need? <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm on the team and you know what, you know, what, buddy, you are <laughs> like, awesome. Thank you. Thank you for feeling that invested. That we, what do we need? No, it's cool to connect with people like that with your, you know, and get them that enthusiastic about the thing you're making. But it's the flip side of the people canceling, and you have no idea why. It makes bums you out, you know. <laughs> yeah, the other one that makes me mad is is people that, and I know it's not a real person, but there's a, a dollar backer that backed out. And I know they're just people that do the dollar so they can do a sales pitch to you, and then they'll. And like if you want, I've had someone do, do that, but they did five dollars. I guess the rate went up. <laughs> yeah, like if you're gonna do it for a buck, it's like. That's just that's pretty, yeah. It's just that's just to me just rude. It's just like, <laughs> like hey man, you can just leave the dollar. You bothered me. You you wasted my time. If for a dollar, okay, I'll ignore it. But to then yeah. want your dollar back, it's like really. <sighs> but you never you never know though, right? I we um, it was an experiment. I'd seen some other people do this. I was like, okay, you know what? Why not? I put in a very low tier. Two dollars Canadian, I think. So whatever that is, American, like nothing. Uh, and the idea was, you just go into this tier to get all the backer update. You will. That's that's all you're getting. No reward. Just you will be pinged with the backer updates by being on on a backer tier, right? So there's a cheapie. And uh, we have had a non-zero. Not a lot of people have gone for that, as you can imagine. But of the people who've gone for it, uh, more than one have later upgraded to a soft cover or hard cover. They just watched the campaign and they were like you know what, actually, yeah, and got in on it. So, like, how cool is that, right? So I guess what I'm saying is what you're describing also happens, and definitely, like, eh, really, you know what happens. But I think, like, for every positive, there's, like, a negative reflection and vice versa. 
Yeah. And I mean, if some people want to do low levels invest, but this person I'm almost positive was just there to, to, you know, yeah. Yeah. It was, if somebody just backs me for a buck and you're like, you know what? I just rather have, I'd rather have a go to Taco Bell and, and get some <laughs> whatever. I mean, like, that's fine. I don't care. You know, it's your money, but it just, oh, I, I hear you. And the scan, the scammers, right? Like, as you mentioned, I mean, I knew it was coming, but it's still been kind of amusing getting emails from people being like, Oliver, if you just give me like, 30 or 40 percent of your final uh, uh take uh i will market you real good and it's like okay and then the other one i've gotten being a, a publishing project maybe you've gotten this too uh is people being like hey oliver i'm a printer in some place whatever anyway do you want to switch printers to us uh, and i was like no my whole campaign is priced around me working closely with this one printer. it'd be so stupid to change that in the middle of a campaign for what what like you know yes. uh just it's just nonsense. No, not any any with 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 printers, uh, fortunately. But maybe because I've, I've not, it, maybe they're aiming more at the the literary people. It's possible. Maybe it's just like I have the right keywords in my. You have the right keywords. Exactly. Like I, my, I got like the anti SEO words, like yeah. the words that attract the stuff you don't want. Yeah. Uh, so you know, but I'll I'll tell you, I'm gonna. You know, we were talking a little before we started recording, uh, dear listener. Like I'm the host here. Sorry, uh, but we were talking a little before we started, and there was a brief talk of like, oh, is there anything you like you don't want to bring up, and you're not comfortable bringing up. And, you know, not really. Um, I, I said, and I'll say it to you now, I, I tend to be pretty transparent. Like I said, I do a podcast, so I'm writing a novel all about, you know, behind the scenes stuff. So, you know what? Uh, we're talking about the kind of um, pledges coming and going and then our reactions to different versions of that. I will share my greatest fear. My greatest fear regarding this is that we will be funding pretty okay. You know, maybe it's like close to 100 or a little over 100. I mean, I really want to hit at least 101, just have that safety cushion, you know. And and we're right at the end, you know, we're right, right an hour from closing or whatever. And then blammo, like 10 cancellations just drag us under when it's too late to like, you know. Oh. That is my 3 a.m. cold sweat nightmare about the Kickstarter. <laughs> Here's what I will say is this will, this will, I, I'm going to guess that in general, the last day you're not going to have. A lot of cancellation. In fact, looking at my stuff now, I'm I'm in the last 24 hours, and last 24 hours before that, there's been very few cancellations. Oh. So, but that bathtub, that's you get a lot of that. I I think what you're going to do is that that surge is, it could happen. I hope so, man. I hope so. You know, you do everything you can to stack the deck in your favor. I've been very fortunate. We've gotten a lot of uh, positive reviews in the places where you want them. You know. Uh, not just like more obvious ones like Grimdark Magazine covered us. Super grateful for that. Don't get me wrong. Uh, various blogs and stuff related to Sword and Sorcery, all places that make sense. But I've also been trying hard to connect with audiences beyond the choir. And so I was very happy that we got a very nice review of Issue Zero in Locus, right? Uh, sort of the industry magazine of magazines. And we also have, I don't know if it's in people's hands yet. I know it's being shipped, if nothing else. Uh, but uh, Charles DeLint, himself an author of Sword and Sorcery many times uh, over the years, who actually launched a few magazines back in the day with uh, Charles Saunders, funny enough, to connect a bunch of dots. He, I, I got to read it in advance, as you do. He has written a glowing review of Issue Zero and what we're doing in general for FNSF, Fantasy and Sci-Fi magazine. Oh, man, that felt good. And I'm hoping that that will kind of, you know, be getting in people's hands and they'll be reading it and going, oh, what's this new Edge of Sword and Sorcery thing? You know, in time to help ramp make that ramp up at the other end of the battle so when's that when's that coming out um i i asked uh i think almost a week ago now i, I wrote the editor and be like oh so when are people getting it and he's like we're shipping it now so 
you know, as soon as people get it in their hot little hands, I guess. <laughs> uh, that's all I can say, say to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be, it, as we've discussed earlier, it's, it's a, it's a, it is a, uh, going to be a close race, apparently, so. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, we, we, there's a lot of reading chicken guts, you know? You're like, well, you look at other people's campaigns. You look at kicktrack.com, which seemed useless at first because I was like, oh, they think that whatever's happening <laughs> yeah. today is going to happen every single day till the end of the campaign. So the first day we were going to raise like $500,000. I was like, sounds great. Uh, you know, we had that first big boom you get at the beginning. Um, hopefully you get. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, you, you and I were talking about how to like look at the daily totals and look at other campaigns that have already finished. That's where I think there's more value. Certainly with KickTrack. I can't even remember the name. Sorry, I'm a little tired. But there's a whole bunch of books on it. Of course, there's a whole lot of snake oil of like how to predict your Kickstarter. But there was one model that, uh, you know, my more patient, more math-minded uh, collaborators on this. Uh, you know, Nathan and Kevin, I was mentioning, have been following. And you know what? It's actually been reasonably accurate. And going by this model, of course, nothing's guaranteed. We've been consistently a little ahead of what it predicts, but uh, not enough to ignore it. Um, we're thinking if the model's right, we're going to come in somewhere around 20,700, 20,000, you know, to 2,100 maybe. But of course, like, even even the most grounded seems to work. We're looking, we're looking at, we we modeled it on another campaign that started a little before us, and it kind of held on that one. You know, it's like even so, even so, nothing's guaranteed. It's all just reading tea leaves and stuff to a certain degree, no matter how you know good the data is. Um, so I've just been trying this whole time, whether it's me getting you know, like when we first got Moorcock attached, of course, a part of me was like, woo woo, we we can't possibly fail. Oh, I was so high on like that joy when I first got him, and then I was like, no, you got to behave like you don't have him. And you've got to behave like this model is telling you you're going to probably succeed. You just got to push as hard as you can and not like a, be nihilistic and assume you're going to fail, but just like don't, nothing's guaranteed. Work no. your ass off, sweat yourself hard on this, you know. Uh, I mean, don't burn out and hurt yourself, but yeah, you know, within a healthy uh, margin, just work your ass off and see what happens. Snack the deck as much as you can. No guarantees. No, there's not. And the more you, you, and I think, you know, you've, you have, uh, you've already kind of established some things that have, that definitely have helped. Cause you know, even if you don't fund, I mean, the amount of money that you generate for this Kickstarter still pretty is very, very impressive. Thank um, you. You know, I, that's just uh, so it's, it's just, it's a lot of times laying the groundwork, which you've been doing. It's just, it's, it's, you know, making the rounds. It's, it's, you know, a lot of what you're, your success, you know, the, the degree to which you succeeded now is because of the work that you did, you know, earlier. Yeah. Issue zero, building a mailing list. Uh, if anybody here is listening and thinking about doing Kickstarter, hasn't done it before. Uh, my God, the you build your mailing list. That is a huge part of it. The like top Twitter just fell to number four actually recently, but for the most of the campaign, the top three refers for our campaign where most of the money's come from has been number one, our mailing list. Number two, uh, people discovering it on Kickstarter, which I thought was going to be so much less uh, discovery. And, and also the people who follow the campaign, right? When they, they hit that link of like, tell me when yeah. it comes up. Um, and number three was, uh, was Twitter, which is why, uh, if you don't know, like there's a lot of editors and publishers of these kinds of magazines, uh, just SFF and general magazines, who are very like about Elon Musk's teetering and tottering, uh, whatever the hell he's doing with Twitter, because it is by far the most effective uh, social media. For getting in touch with people and connecting to the audiences and like connect with. Well, them. for for um, me, and for people similar to what I'm doing, mm-hmm. up until Elon Musk just did the, I just broke broke 
broke uh, it in a lot of ways. Oh, please, uh, breaking. It's still happening. <laughs> it is. Yeah, he, the... Week by week. It was it was more than just the like reaching out to as far as marketing my podcast just for the podcast mainly it was huge me connecting with other creatives to collaborate to find freelancers huge it was huge and finding writers finding artists connecting with different people and uh like nothing i've ever seen before as far as i got i had twitter Tailor to just a really sweet spot of finding new potential artists and new potential writers. And it, it was just incredible. And now it's like, it's, it's, it's not deserted, but it's definitely much lower, but than it was. It's, it's not what, it's not what it was. It's still our fastest growing social media account. Funny enough. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's the best, but it's not what it was. Um, yeah. Mastodon is not it. Folks, I gotta say, a lot of people, uh, when Elon first started really kicking uh, the sides of the car, so to speak, um, a lot of people ran a Mastodon and were talking about Mastodon. Oh, it's gonna be Mastodon. It's great for these reasons. But like, Mastodon has too, it's too finickety to get set up on and figure out how to even use the damn thing. I can't even get on it. My, I, I thought I, I yeah. kept waiting for my email. It still hasn't arrived. I, I, I got on it, but I, I just found it too much of a pain in the ass to like find people to connect with and follow them. And what doesn't help, is that it's run by seemingly, I mean, I don't know them personally, but from what I've gathered, it's run by people whose at response to people saying, can you make this easier to use is, ah, eh, figure it out. So like, that's not friendly. And the, the last thing I'll say about Mastodon that just, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's, it's, it's not only will it not build a big enough audience because it's so finicky to even figure out how to freaking use, right? You need to make something as easy to use as possible if you want to build a big audience, which is what makes social media you know, platforms worth using. Um, it's also with this whole thing of instances, like these little siloed communities, these you know sort of micro forums within the overall thing. It's really susceptible to uh, little 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 tyrants. You know, I have watched a lot of communities form, get like you know the bigger ones that are worth knowing that they even exist. We'll get like twelve thousand people or something. And then next thing you know, uh, the guy running it just like throws a hissy fit and kills the whole thing, or starts banning lots of people because they don't like a movie he likes. Like literally that stupid. Or you know, it turns out the person running the whole show. Uh, is unfriendly to queer people and they start making that clear and then ah oh, jesus everybody starts leaving you know yeah. like it's just it's too i mean much I mean, as elon is the you know demonstrating at the biggest level with twitter you really can't have one person running a social media platform without making it volatile and if you have this platform that's made up of little micro platforms within it like mastodon is then you've just got a whole bunch of little tyrants i mean take it up with anybody who's uh probably sighing and rolling their eyes at hearing me say this who's uh, spent a lot of time on reddit you know, you got a lot of mod tyrants on there. You can't have that if you're going to have a place be able to build uh, a large uh, user base that can easily connect with each other in the way that we can still do on Twitter, even if some people have kind of distanced themselves from it because they're fed up with how it's getting kind of janky. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's where I would come back to number one. I was mentioning there the mailing list, right? For now, emails, email, baby. So, you know, so I've not done the mailing list. I think it's because that's the part I have problems with. Really? Yeah, there's just definitely yeah, and I know I should, and I've got people, but what's what I've what so what's kind of taking the place of my mailing list? You ready for this? Sure. I just plan on doing a Kickstarter every few months. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you can keep reaching out to past backers through that, right? Like, because every time yeah. somebody backs it, they're going to get another notification. <laughs> it ain't it ain't too shabby. I I. I considered that but i thought no i need the mailing list because well first i I wanted to let people know issue zero was out right there was no kickstarter for that 
And then I I just, you know, I I don't plan like I also have an inbox. I also have an inbox that's too busy and, and I don't need I don't follow a lot, of, a lot of newsletters. I especially don't follow newsletters where people feel they have to put out something every week or every other week because I find I just I I slide off those eventually. I just I just don't need to hear about even really busy, successful authors, after a while, it's like they kind of start sending newsletters about how their dog's doing and like, God bless your dog, but that's, I don't need that in my inbox. So my attitude has been to send as little email as humanly possible and make it very concise and very like, here's the thing you care about. Here's why you signed up. So, you know, for the longest time, we'd only send one email. It was issue zero is out, man. Here's the link. Check it out. <laughs> that was one email. <laughs> no, I, I do think yeah. newsletters are a good way to go. In fact, if I were wise, I would do that. It's just that of all activity, I'm not a writer. Uh, I've written a lot, but I'm, I don't. I don't really want to be doing that. Oh yeah, but you don't have to be Shakespeare to write. Uh, hey, check it out, man. Uh, this thing's coming up. Uh, go to the Kickstarter and sign up for. Uh, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's. it's just, it, I have a no. I, it, it comes. It, I don't know. It's not. It's not like modesty. It's not about. It's not about self doubt. It's just. It's, I am just not wired for that. It is, it is, it's much harder for me to do that than it is to do a hundred other things I need to do. Fair enough. And I mean, at the end of the day, right, if you figure out something's working for you, I mean, you're getting your projects made. Well, like, I'm not going to say it's working for me because that, that would be, that's probably not true. I, you know, obviously I've got a job, so I've got a family, I've got multiple projects going on. Uh, I try to have some sort of balance, but, but should I have, should I spend one maybe thirty minutes every few weeks and just throw down a few things? That'd be time well spent. Would it even be thirty minutes every few weeks? Right, like this is the thing you got to decide for yourself. What are your, what are your victory conditions? Right, and for me, victory conditions was uh, get enough people on a thing that I can just send off a road flare once every however many months. <laughs> I mean, like go uh, new Mark, stuff. Go check out the new Mark stuff. Finn, I, Mark Finn is by far, I don't follow a lot of people, but if you, I don't know if you subscribe to his uh, North Texas Apocalypse Bunker. I do now. I, I kind of have been aware of Mark for like a year and I keep meaning to check him out. And then I saw him on your show and I was like, oh, right, Jesus, come on, Oliver. And I went and subscribed. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, he's like, but, but he likes to write and he loves to write about media. And he he's also, there's things that are personally going on that he shared that was very much like, oh, now I'm aware of of things I never really considered, and, and it helped me be more empathetic. Um, you know. For... Oh yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the more personal uh, author emails, and uh, sometimes I really like reading those. There are, are very few people I follow like that. Uh, sometimes it's because I know them. Ryan North is a comic author, a great guy. Uh, but yeah, point is, I guess I just thought for what I was doing, I was I was thinking, well, this is marketing. Is what I is what is what I do in my email mailing list. So you know what. I'm going to give people the kind of marketing that I want, which is just get to the damn point and don't bug me too much. <laughs> Actually, I, for like for Mark, he provides value with his newsletters. I think even if somebody just provides something really cool, it's like, hey, by the oh, way, yeah, I but- just I read a movie, or I read a book, or I saw this movie, and and just give a little blurb and then put yeah, your own yeah. thing on there. But but there, but there, it feels to me. I mean, you know that that is the thing, right? The newsletter is the thing, and so that's all good. You're enjoying it, and, you, and, and right. the content of the newsletter is the thing. For me, the the thing isn't the newsletter. The newsletter is pointing toward the thing, which is the magazine. So now, that's, now that's we're getting philosophical. Philosophy. What is the thing? Well, what is the thing? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think if you provide something that people want are interested in consuming, and you do it on a on a 
on a consistent basis, whatever that means. Um, people look forward to it. I think they enjoy reading it and it keeps you on people's minds. For sure. But anyway, I'm just, sorry, I feel like I'm trying to bully you into doing a mailing list. I'm totally not. <laughs> I just get enthusiastic and I, I, I can be kind of a, a chronic problem solver in the sense that I see it, but not even a problem that I'm just like, oh, let me help. And the person's like, I didn't ask you to. So pardon me. <laughs> just, I get enthusiastic and I think I say, I, uh, mailing list has been good by me. Um, yeah, well, no, if, if if I were bigger, I mean, my company were bigger. <laughs> the, uh, I was I, just a little taller. <laughs> I would, I would, I, I've, I've started thinking about I, I, of hiring somebody to, to, to do that for me. I mean, that's definitely, you know, cause I recognize that's not, it is a valuable thing to do, but for the amount of effort it takes me to do it. It's just not worth it when I can do other things that are probably, I don't want to say more important, but I can do other things easier. Oh, fair, fair. And then that's the kind of math you got to do, you know, periodically, not just for new things, potentially new things you could do, but the things you're already doing, right? It's good to self reassess everyone now. I just need more money. Yeah. Well, (laughs) well. I think they have my own staff. If that that ain't everything, you know. I'm not asking for much. If I just have a million dollars in the bank drawing your stuff off, I'm I'm good for a while. Yeah, I'd, I'd be good. I wouldn't be running the Kickstarter. No. So yeah. Hi. Well, actually, going back to what I was going to say, uh, it is getting kind of late. Uh, yeah. But what I was going to say is, you mentioned something. So I was on Twitter while this is before the Elon Musk thing, and some person was whining or complaining and outraged. On Twitter? uh, (gasps) I know. At what Kickstarter was charging. Oh, like their their cut. Yeah, okay. And I am thinking if you, if anybody's ever ran a Kickstarter and looked at the numbers that it generates from odds and ends, it's like, that's marketing. You will never, ever on any other platform on the face of this earth will ever get that sort of directed marketing like Kickstarter will do for you. Well, this is where I'm going to be cheeky. Uh, I must admit, BackerKit's doing some very in- interesting things on their pro- uh, platform that they uh, haven't been. Oh right yeah, now. but I mean, but, I'm but not the saying general that, idea. Augment, yeah. But I'm saying if you if you yeah. were to cut out Backer yeah, Kickstarter, yeah, yeah, you will never get that same level of funding. You definitely would never get that level of funding if you had like a PayPal button on your own website. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you can. I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but we we have we would be in a much worse place without being on Kickstarter right now. Right, and and I think BackerKit can augment. And I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying is if you look at what Kickstarter is doing yeah. and the emails it does, and the next so the next time you will do a Kickstarter, BackerKit can also email people too. But you also have Kickstarter emailing people, and yeah. and people you, discovering by searching Kickstarter, right? Like I, one thing I was really surprised by doing this, I thought, oh, who goes on Kickstarter and just searches for projects? Because I personally have only ever backed things I've heard about through social yeah, exactly. media or buddies, right? But lo and behold, I can see statistics for our thing. Like it's, uh, it's it's notable what we've gotten from people just going on Kickstarter, being like, "What you got?" Yeah, <laughs> you know. And for that cut that they take, it's well worth it. It's pretty well worth reasonable. it. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like I, they whoever it was I, I I didn't challenge him for a number of reasons, but it's just uh-huh. like sometimes people get me so upset. I will I will make a rebuttal or I will say something. 
And then it'll be uh, 60 seconds later, I'll go back to my computer and delete it. <laughs> yeah. Well, speak, well, speak come back to what you were saying about like the stuff you could do, but the energy and the other things you could be doing with that energy. Yeah. I mean, argue, argue online. I'm with you, man. Like, <laughs> I think I don't like conflict. I think also I, I, I don't like conflict. And I think I'm just making somebody upset for no good reason. And oh, yeah, uh, you know, and where, where, where does it get you at, at the yeah. end of it all? Right. Like, Oh, geez. Yeah. No, some people have been kind of like, oh, you know, like I said, for some of the stuff I'm pushing with the magazines, you know, sort of uh, attitude about growing the scene, et cetera. Oh, you're going to go around and tell people they're bad for doing whatever. I'm like, no, I'm going to have a sandwich. I'm going to go outside. Yes, just I'm gonna, because I'm saying I'm say hi that I'm going to have a smorgasbord doesn't mean that I hate hamburgers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can like lots game. of things. <laughs> And I'm not going to spend time going around yelling at people who like yeah. hamburgers. <laughs> Just because I eat at a Chinese restaurant today doesn't mean <laughs> I now forsake all uh, Mexican restaurants in the future. <laughs> Damn, I mean, I had somebody uh, saying the other day, they they, they, I, you know, they were respectful, and we actually had a little conversation that corrected things. But they were under the impression that I didn't like sex appeal uh, in sword and sorcery art. And I was like... Are you kidding me? Like, first of all, I own a bunch of classic Rosetta covers, right? Which is like the guy. I'm sure you came up with you when you were speaking with Mark uh, for for sort of classic uh, sword and sorcery art. But I was like, I just even outside of sword and sorcery, like I got Russ Meyer DVDs, man. Like I'm fine with sex appeal. You know, it's just like don't assume things because it's not in the the one project that's at the foreground of what a person is making. You know? Uh, yeah. So whatever, then that's right? an interesting whatever. thing too. You know, and and you know. Um, you with a project because because that is definitely uh a a a trope we'll say mm. of of that and you know it's good like it's interesting like what do you put in how do you put it in well but here's the solution in my mind right oh uh people are maybe you know some people i shouldn't say everybody but some people maybe are a little tired of like you know the muscular guy standing on the cover with the like mostly nude woman hanging off his leg although the guys tend to not wear a lot of clothes and sword and sorcery either uh and uh i'm like yeah well you know what you do you just uh you don't have to burn all the art that looks like that or stop making new art that looks like that you just gotta make art that's you know aimed at other people uh, you know other maybe you make stuff that maybe more you know straight women women who like men are into make stuff for yeah, people right, make exactly. stuff for makes make a variety add exactly. to it, make it bigger which is like <laughs> my, my my mantra of everything i've said so many times tonight uh you know and just just make more stuff make a variety of stuff or maybe you, you do have it but it doesn't have to be like an overt sexual or, or not the only thing, you know, like, yeah. I mean, one thing I, I did con- very conscious decision I made, actually, if you watch our uh, Kickstarter video, there is a montage of art samples by all the different artists that we have gone. And one of them is a woman who's not wearing a hell of a lot of clothes, swinging a sword, looking at the camera. And then the very next person, uh, piece of art that I had uh, after that was a woman also swinging a sword, but she's wearing full plate mail. And I, and I intentionally had that contrast just thrown in the rapid fire of like, you know, 19 artists, art samples. This is a little subtle way of being like, you know what? We're down with sex appeal, but we're also down with like not having to portray people always as objects of sexual desire. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and even, you know, the sexy, you know, less dressed woman uh, is uh, in action. She's doing stuff. She's not just hanging off a guy's leg. So, you know, you can, it's like I say, man, it's just this thing. It's, beware false choices. Beware thinking you can only have one flavor we were thinking you know yeah can you can have so much the world can be so much bigger and friendlier and more fun and more varied ah you know anyway give me money there you go <laughs> give me money and i will give you a more colorful and wider exciting world i will give you the answers you always thought it just turned into a cult so gradually 
I didn't even realize. <laughs> yeah, maybe what you could do is you could offer uh, art, but maybe at the higher funding levels, like it becomes more <laughs> evocative. <laughs> no, no, it's supposed to arts for everybody. I'm I, I, nudity for the proletariat. Come on. Uh, <laughs> yes. Put bounties on characters. Okay. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, as you say, we, we've been talking a while. If, if, if uh, I'll say one last time, if I may, just to make sure it doesn't get lost in all the other talk. Folks, if you've been hearing me jibber-jabber here and think, okay, yeah, I want to check it out. Shut up, Oliver. Where do I go? Please um, go to Kickstarter. You can search for New Edge Sword and Sorcery or even to Sword and Sorcery. It will get recommended. Or you can, you know, the easiest thing in the world you can do, go to New Edge, E-D-G, Edge, New Edge, not Edge, New Edge Sword and Sorcery.com. New Edge Sword and Sorcery.com. It's a very simple uh, main page with buttons you can find. It'll take you to the Kickstarter. It will take you to Issue Zero, free and digital, cheap as possible soft cover hardcover and uh just other stuff like our press page if you want to see reviews and you know other people's opinions about the magazine that aren't mine yeah it's all there new edge sword sorcery.com please give us a whirl the kickstarter is over at 8 a.m eastern standard time saturday march 4th make an editor feel a little more confident and uh help support the project so we can get over that 100 percent and maybe we can go into the stretch goals get more art uh pay the authors and artists more money that is the majority of our stretch goals is paying creatives more get that michael moorcock story get that translated spanish language author story get all that art get all that nonfiction. get that well that sounds great well good luck oliver and thanks for coming on i really appreciate it thanks for having me man cheers yep until next time <laughs>